Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is the creator of a great YouTube channel. He's out there doing some really great and insightful criticism. Mike Stone from Rotted Reviews is here. How's it going, Mike? Well, it's going pretty good. How are you doing? Doing pretty well over here as well. Uh, so we've talked about horror before on your channel, but... Yep. For people who are new to you, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into horror in the first place? Well, uh, I remember going through the VHS aisles. You know, uh, at, in, I grew up in San Diego, and we had this VHS store called The Warehouse. And I remember going there, and it was always this kind of taboo thing. While everybody you know, in my family was browsing for their selections, I was in the horror section just looking at the boxes. And I knew that I would never <laughs> be able to rent them. I was not going to be allowed. Uh, but it was still fun for me to go through there and just fascinated yeah. with you know the front and the back and you know so forth and I kind of got exposed to uh, horror movies by my father in small doses probably actually a little bit uh, more than uh, I was ready for at the time uh, but I think it was around the time that I was a teenager uh, late teens and I rented Evil Dead 2 a classic. Yeah, I remember <laughs> having seen that box art so many times in that VHS aisle. And I finally decided to go ahead and give it a whirl, give it a rent. And it immediately started taking this fascination and actually turning it into an, an obsession almost. So that's really what kind of steamrolled things for me. That's awesome. And I mean, it's, I think it's so awesome when movies like Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 sort of spark this love in people because I think it's really easy to tell. In, in movies like that, that they're made with such passion and by such fans of the genre that I think it's really easy for that to communicate through movies. I think that this is one of the, the mediums where you can really kind of feel the passion of all the people working on it. And that's a really, um, a particularly passionate one, it feels like. Um, Absolutely, so. yeah. And your show is interesting because while there's no shortage of YouTube channels talking about horror, yours focuses on lesser seen and international releases. Um, I'm curious what made you want to go that direction instead of talking. I mean, you definitely, you know, other movies do come up, but uh, I'm curious what made you want to go in that direction instead of, you know, just hitting the latest and greatest blockbusters like everyone else. Well, it kind of started out as, well, I, I was... Way back when, decades ago, I was very, very brief period, a published film critic. So that's kind of more my origin, film critic before YouTuber. And I had the itch a while back, about uh, almost two years ago now, I had the itch to start doing movie reviews again. And the idea of having a YouTube channel was fascinating to me. So uh, it kind of took some more inspiration from shows that I was already watching, like Good Mythical Morning and so forth. It's kind of seeing that there could be this kind of organic creative growth going on, and I wouldn't be uh, beholding to any kind of editor or timeline or anything like that. <laughs> uh, so th there was kind of the allure there. Plus, it also was a little bit of a challenge for me in terms of you know, getting used to the sound of my voice and looking at my mug in the editing's you know room kind of thing. Uh, so it, it was it was kind of a a lark of personal growth. That's what started the mm -hmm. YouTube thing. And then, as far as why the uh, gearing towards the lesser known titles, that was almost just kind of following the analytics more than anything else. I mean, you're right. There is an influx of people that do horror movie reviews and talk about horror films. So. 
uh, it was kind of my way of almost standing out, you know, trying to carve out my little niche. And I was noticing that as I was tackling the lesser known things, especially the stuff that hit uh, VOD fairly recently, it, it was almost like striking while the iron was hot. You know, people would go through their mm-hmm. Amazon Prime queues and they would see the new stuff or they would go through Shutter and they would see the new stuff. And then they would look up a review of it. And if I'm one of the only ones there, I get the, you know, the more hits. So it's just kind of following the analytics. And then it kind of started to become what I was known for. And then I started to kind of get those questions of, you know, the uh, esoteric watches and things like that. So, uh, yeah, it's it's something I didn't... I didn't, yeah, I didn't intend to start that way, but uh, it's it served me well. I think, unfortunately, I have had to suffer through some uh, terrible titles more than most. But sure, yeah. that's that's fine. And I mean, I I love it. I think that you serve a really a, a noble purpose in in shining a spotlight <laughs> on some of these uh, these these smaller movies. And and you know, I think that again, it, it's. Some of these bigger, uh, bigger budget movies don't necessarily have the same heart that some of the smaller ones do, and so very true. Um, bringing that, bringing those to people is always uh, an exciting thing, and it's to do. wonderful to be surprised. You know, if you if you have a preconception yeah. about a film and then it just completely blows that out of the water, and you know, it, it's just the most, it's the best thing ever uh, to be surprised yeah. on that level, and to know that you have watched a hidden gem that you know you try to expose <laughs> other people to at that point. Yeah. Um, I also, I, I think it's really interesting. You mentioned how you were fascinated by YouTube and, you know, you get used to putting yourself on mm-hmm. camera and everything. I think it's really interesting the way that this new platform, it revitalized film criticism in the way that sort of you see happen with actual filmmaking as well. You know, when the personal camera, the personal camcorder became much more popular, people who weren't able to enter this forbidden area where it was very high entry cost and everything all of a sudden that opened up to all these new people and i think that youtube and podcasting as well um really sort of opened things up for 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 a new wave of of film criticism and i mean obviously you're gonna have your wheat with your Mm -hmm. chaff but uh, i i think that you know it's definitely to criticism's benefit that uh, all these new voices found a place. Absolutely. And I was kind of in the, I don't know, passenger seat, I guess, uh, as this was starting to, you know, uh, back in the late nineties, early aughts, I was kind of involved in some production of some very, very indie uh, films in San Diego. And uh, it's just one of the best times I've ever had, but it was filmed on mini DV cameras. And I think it was, mm-hmm. it wasn't even 720p. It was like 480p. And <laughs> you know, I got to edit those and so forth. And it was, it was fun, but I still think that at that point, although we were seeing this kind of transition over to digital, it still wasn't quite there yet. So we were still looking at, if you wanted to be an independent filmmaker, you still had to have a baseline budget in the five figures, you know, for just mm-hmm. renting the equipment and developing 35 millimeter film stock. And yeah, now we've gotten to the point where there's no excuses left. You know, I have, I have a 4K <laughs> camera in my phone. I mean, <laughs> if you want to shoot something, yeah. go, you know, just shoot it. Uh, you know, have your ideas, get it down and just start creating. And through that creation, just learn. Uh, I mean, I, that's, that's the sure. way I did it in my YouTube channel. If you look at, I, I hate looking at some of my earlier videos, 
But, you know, I can see that kind of growth process and that learning process as things get more comfortable in shooting and editing and so on and so forth. And, you know, same can apply for anyone else. They just got to go out there and do it. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy seeing Steven Soderbergh make these movies that he films on iPhones and stuff. Like, Unsane. Um, really remarkable. Yeah, Unsane. Really a, a fun movie. I, I think that sort of loses its way once it confirms which way it's right. going. But uh, but it's really cool. And it's fil- it, like, it looks great. It's filmed on an iPhone. Really remarkable stuff. Yeah, I think, I think honestly, <laughs> the scare notion uh, preceding that was actually the scarier mm-hmm. element of the film. Right, definitely. But, but yeah, so the point is that really uh, it's, it's remarkable uh, where we've uh, reached at this point. Uh, I was curious if you, not only if you have a subgenre that you gravitate towards, but I was also wondering um, if that changes depending on the budget of the movie. If you feel that there are some subgenres that maybe can only be re- like really actually effectively captured by a movie with a higher budget. Hmm. So, so yeah, uh, I want to hear your take on that sort of thing. Well, I think my favorite subgenre is kind of tied into my pick of this one, which is Haunted Houses. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I'll get into that as I get into uh, the, the pick of this uh, episode here. But as far as subgenres that can be affected by budget, the only one that really kind of springs to mind is space. You know, when you mm-hmm. have space horror, that is the kind of thing that really is difficult to pull off. You know, zombie, so on and so forth, uh, creature features and so on. You know, you get yourself some latex modeling kits. You get yourself, you know, you raid your grandma's pantry and get some gelatin sheets <laughs> and some flour and so on. You can make it happen. You know, there's a million YouTube tutorials out there for makeup effects and so on. But, you know, the nature of space horror and uh, that, you know, the sci-fi horror and futuristic kind of things it's so heavy in special effects and it's so heavy in props and it's so heavy in backgrounds that that would be a really tough thing to pull off without having some sort of significant budget. I think one of the exceptions to that was Cube, but I would, I would argue that's that's not really space. That is more sci-fi, but it's not really space. Right. Um, I agree. I think that you've really hit the nail on the head there. And also I think that Cube is awesome. So, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it just occurred to me that I'm actually watching. I'm I'm, I'm wearing my Event Horizon shirt. So there you go. Perfect. Um, speaking of space yeah. horror, I actually just rewatched that the other day, and um, knowing that there is some aged CGI and not being thrown off by it made it a, a much more enjoyable watch. And I already enjoyed it the first nice. time. So <laughs> yeah, that was actually a recent video of mine that kind of blew up. Was uh, I did an ending explained of of that, and that uh, see people seem to really gravitate towards gravitate (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) um awesome well people should definitely go check that uh that episode out then but today we're talking about the 1973 movie the legend of hell house directed by john howe screenplay by richard matheson who also wrote the novel it was based on this is not to be confused with shirley jackson's the haunting of hill house But just a cultural fun fact, this movie was one of the inspirations for Edgar Wright uh, when he was filming the fake trailer for Don't, which appears between Death Proof and Planet Terror in Grindhouse. So cultural fun fact that I couldn't find anywhere else to fit that in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so it's interesting to me that you said that haunted houses are your favorite Mm subgenre because... I, I think it's fascinating when someone chooses to make sort of the movie equivalent of a bottle episode um, where you're sort of in this one location because it definitely helps to save budget and you can spend that money elsewhere right. um, because you're not jumping around from location to location. 
but that means that your audience is really locked in. And so your audience, uh, your actors really need to be on their A game and haunted houses are this in spades because, you know, it's paranormal. So there's not even necessarily something for them to react to. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it takes a lot from your actors to really be able to pull something like this off. So I, I think it's a, a movie with some really impressive character work and a, a subgenre in general that, that really sort of fosters that thing. Absolutely. That, that aspect. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I've always said, you know, if you watch any of my reviews, you're probably going to hear me say this a few times at the very least is one of the best ways to create actual terror in a movie is to isolate it, you know, isolate the Mm -hmm. characters. The more grand you make something just inherently, the less scary it becomes. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, geographically, but take the ring, for example, when those characters are cursed and, you know, they see that their faces are warped on the CCTV cameras and only their faces. That's something that is very intimate. It's very, very mm-hmm. isolated to them and it makes them uh, very alone. Yeah. And it's relatable stakes, too. Absolutely. It's not like, it's not like, oh, the fate of the world. You know, yeah. it's like me and my family. What would we do in this situation? Right. So. Exactly. But then when we start to branch out more and we start to get, you know, unfortunately, you know, kind of one of the examples that kind of springs to mind is pandemic movies uh but you know we we take movies some of it like say world war z it inherently becomes less scary when you know mm-hmm. millions of people are affected by the scary element eh, it's it's tough if it, it breaks us kind of out of our monkey sphere there and it, mm-hmm. it becomes too grand it becomes too much to wrap our heads around if we have characters that we are uh invested in and we keep them into their own little intimate place of terror then Mm. it's a lot easier to really get the audience on board and scare the pants off of them and haunted houses are one of the best ways to do that and yeah yeah, uh i mean it, it it can feel a little static but at the same time, that's up to the filmmaker and up to the mm. writer. It can, yeah. I mean, it's a playground. And it's also one of the best ways you can have levels of uh, uh, terror is by having levels of the house or, yeah. or distinct geographical regions with distinct aesthetics. Take, for example, The Legend of Hell House. Uh, in this movie, they had the chapel, and they established fairly early on that the chapel was kind of the heart of the house. And no, we won't be going in there quite yet. We're not ready <laughs> to open this door yet. So, I mean, it, it, and you know, same thing with okay, Shirley Jackson's the you know 1963, The Haunting. We had the nursery that you know the heart of the house there. It it allows for just knowing where we are physically with these characters. How scared should we be? How bad is it currently? And House on Haunted Hill. Again, many levels. We had the sub-basement and so forth, and we had the uh, plasticine characters uh, behind the glass and so forth. So we knew, based on our geography, how bad things actually were for the characters at any given point. And it was just so much fun to play with them on that level. Uh, one of my favorite things about that movie was the fact uh, that, uh, oh, sorry, what's your policy on spoilers as far as things go? <laughs> uh, everything is fair game. All right. Um, so one of my favorite things about the Jeffrey Rush version of House on Haunted Hill is the fact that those characters in the glass cases, 
never come alive. Right. It, it, it's, it, it sets it up. It's, you expect it's going to happen, and it doesn't. It's a great subversion of that sort of like Chekhov's gun where you're like, exactly. oh, it's here. It's got to go off eventually. And so they're just sitting there scarily the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually you're like, what the hell? It never even, never even happened. I was scared the whole time for nothing. It was, um, it was just because the, your own expectations of it. Exactly. It was one of the best anti-devices I've ever <laughs> seen. Yeah, that's uh, great. And it, it just turned out to be so scary for actually having done literally nothing. Um, and then on top of that, with the Haunted House movie, you also have the sort of existential dread that just comes by be- the very nature of discussing life after death and if there are ghosts and that sort of thing. So Absolutely. Uh, it's one of those things that's just so prevalent in so much lore. Uh, I mean, going back to like, you know, the old dark house, you know, that, that fantastic, whimsical movie there. But even going further back, you know, Frankenstein had his castle. Uh, you know, Dracula had his castle. You know, there, there's always that element of the dark house with the storm and the lightning crashing behind it and so forth that just right. really resonates with people. It's it's almost like this just this primal fundamental fear that we have of dark, abandoned, cobweb uh, houses. And I just I love it. It's one of the things that scares me the most. And that's one of the things that I love most about horror films is when I get scared. Well, this movie does that in spades. And I mean, like I was saying, these movies don't work if you don't have a cast that can actually bring it together. And this movie has a pretty small but excellent cast. We pretty much only spend time or significant screen time with four characters. Pamela Franklin as Florence Tanner, Gail Hunnicutt as Ann Barrett. Roddy McDowell, who you might know as Peter Vincent from Fright Night or Cornelius from Planet of the Apes, playing Ben Fisher, and Clive Reville as Lionel Barrett, who's done just a ton of TV and voice acting, but uh, he also played Dr. Kellaway in Chud 2, Bug the Chud, (laughs) and we're actually recording on May the 4th, and he was the emperor in The Empire Strikes Back, so there you go. Nice little (laughs) connection. (laughs) What, What do you think about this cast? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they are absolutely incredible the whole movie very stellar all around and in particular in my opinion roddy mcdowell it would have been very very easy to go over the top and i would argue that roddy uh did (laughs) (laughs) but he did so in the most delightful way and it wasn't extremely over the top it wasn't nicholas cage unhinged over the top it was basically just you know i I think a little heightened yeah i think i said in my review that it was uh roddy at his most mcdowellist or something like that (laughs) And yeah, everybody in here did a fantastic job as far as the roles that they were portraying. Roddy as the person that had been scarred by the house before and was, you know, entering into it for the second time reluctantly, but he needed the money, had that great sense of trepidation about him. He knew the stakes, Mm -hmm. he knew the score, he knew how to survive, and he was going to do it by basically just going in. He basically he was like almost going into prison. He was just going to go yeah. there, shut up, do his time, and leave. And well, I I wanted to mention that he he doesn't talk for a while, even once the character has been introduced. Like the character is very quiet, especially at the beginning, because he has this prior knowledge. He knows the stakes. He's not full of uh, vim and vigor to get this done like the other two are. Yeah. he's he's fearful yeah. as they should be. And as far as the other roles go, I thought that they did a very excellent job of portraying the, you know, like we have the other psychic, uh, the other medium, you know, Roddy was, uh, I believe the uh, mental medium and we had no reverse. Oh, right. Physical medium and Florence Tanner was the mental medium. So, and you know, she going into it with that sense of excitement and naivety, 
you know, mm-hmm. she just she was excited to get uh, you know some of her stuff recorded and you know uh, documented and so on. You know, realizing that this was a dangerous place, but not to you know not understanding the extent to which. Yeah, she's young. She has a chip on her shoulder. Feels like she has something to prove, especially in this community where there's a certain element of distrust from the beginning because very easy to sort of be called a fraud or to be a fraud. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that. All of that sort of baggage that comes with being an up-and-comer in an exclusionary community is portrayed to perfection Absolutely. By, uh, by Pamela Franklin. And so naive was she that she was, you know, the information that the house was giving her, you know, she was just trusting outright, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, turned out to be subterfuge. But I just love that the, the journey that she went on as this mm-hmm. house basically lied to her and uh, tried to break her. And then Clive uh, Revel. Oh wow! I mean, talk about a smug performance. You know, the entire <laughs> time you just basically wanted it was just a punchable face the whole mm-hmm. way through, uh, which was perfect. He, he, you know, he played the role perfectly, and yeah. I just loved it. Yeah, absolutely. And the the three of them uh, working sort of together to stop this threat uh, while being at each other's throats the whole time is is really really great. But. I don't want to talk about the outskirts of the movie anymore. Let's dive right into it. This opening text, I just absolutely cracked me up because it says, although the story of this film is fictitious, the events depicted involving psychic phenomena are not only very much within the bounds of possibility, but could well be true. Tom Corbett, clairvoyant and psychic consultant to European royalty. This means nothing. No, This literally (laughs) is saying, I don't know, it could be. It, it absolutely means nothing, but the beginning of this movie is one of the things I love most about it is, well, I don't know about most, but it's one of the things I love about it, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it has the text, and it opens up with, uh, I don't even remember the but like the character in the wheelchair, the rich benefactor. Deutsch, yeah. Uh, basically saying, you know, I want you to go to this house, it's haunted, here you go, boom, we're off and running. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty well, much how it went. Yeah, it is. But but even that very beginning, like where they're literally just giving you the most basic information, I think that they do a really interesting job with it. I mean, so phys- uh, Lionel Barrett, who we mentioned before, uh, he's a physicist. Mm-hmm. He's called in to talk with uh, eccentric millionaire, Mr. Deutsch, uh, who's interested in life after death. He's an old man. He's in this wheelchair easy to see why he might be concerned about this sort of thing. Um, And it's really interesting camera work right off the bat where Barrett is approaching head on down a long corridor with uh, Deutsch right in the foreground to sort of offset it. And then during the upcoming conversation between them, instead of doing like a shot reverse shot thing, which is a a lot more common in dialogue scenes, they just have them like real close together, which brings this intensity to the discussion. And um, I I think it's, it's really great. And, uh, like you said, there he's a hundred thousand pounds. Barrett needs to go make this investigation uh, into the one place that it has yet to be uh, refuted mm-hmm. uh, about survival after death, which is the Belasco House. And there's great delight on the face of Deutsch as he reveals that this is where Barrett is heading and that he wants results within a week. Simple setup, but very effective. Yeah, and you get the idea, uh, if I recall correctly that Dr. Barrett thought that the Belasco house was going to be like an insurmountable thing. Like, you know, we actually got permission. You know, we actually managed to get the owner to sign off on letting us do this. Like, wow. Okay. You know, here we go. The only thing that I just cringe at just a little bit, I guess, is the way that they describe it. I guess it's, 
it serves the purpose of telling you what the score is, what the scale is, but <laughs> the Mount Everest of haunted houses, it just seems really schlocky to me. But, you know, you, you take what you can get. Yeah, well, and Fisher is their Tenzing Norgay, and he's going to Sherpa them <laughs> right up that mountain. <laughs> And, uh, and yeah, so basically what it boils down to is Barrett agrees to do this. He asks for a full list of the phenomena that have occurred there, as well as the finishing of construction of and transportation of a machine that he has in his lab. Again, very sort of Chekhov's gun, which does tend to happen these, but I don't think that there's anything wrong with like strongly indicating that something is going to come into play later. I think that it has a nice sort of expectation of setup here where you're like, great, I can look forward to this coming back. Check it away or like tuck it away in my brain box here. And so, yeah, so on the way home, he he describes this uh, Mount Everest of, of haunted houses and the sort of history of the house comes out a little later, but we'll just talk about it now. Basically, uh, it was originally owned by notorious quote-unquote roaring giant Emmerich Belasco, um, a six-foot-five pervert millionaire murderer. Uh, He disappeared soon after a massacre at his house, but Basically, this lecherous and sadistic guy uh, was based off of stories of the occultist Aleister Crowley, where it's like some of them are stories of his own devising where because, you know, they just like having that notoriety and, and what's true and what's not helps to sort of build this legend of the house. And so they're like, this house is not only haunted by him, but all the victims of his sex death parties mm-hmm. and shit. <laughs> like, uh, and all of the previous investigations into this have resulted in eight deaths uh, from from the last two investigations. And like you said, Ben Fisher, the physical medium, who's also going to be on the trip, um, is the lone survivor from two full investigations, which I think is um, really effective at sort of setting the stakes of this, where it's like, okay, you know, maybe it's not uh, some crazy monster tearing up a city, but like eight deaths, nothing to scoff at just from just from the investigations like you're like this is a serious fucking house yeah absolutely and it almost it, you know it leaves that uh, door open for how serious you know i mean mm-hmm. uh, as soon as they you know cross the threshold are they basically just kind of fucked mm-hmm. or you know do they have to be in there for some period of time or you know establish themselves or so on and so forth and you know that's left up to question but you're right you know eight deaths is definitely is great about setting the stakes there yeah and the group finally arrives at the house to begin their investigation on december 20th deutsch says that uh, or deutsch's assistant says he'll be back on the 24th and it's here with the arrival of them at the house that we finally get the opening credits and i love that they held off on this i think that the opening credits are so good too with these incredibly creepy exteriors mm-hmm. you get a cute cat and then bang we're there we're ready to go just like they are yep that very uh, almost uh, Hammer and Amicus-esque opening credits there with the fog mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. But yeah, they're just and the score was fantastic too. Oh, yeah. And uh, they step into the house. Florence says that the house knows that they're there. It's very dramatic. But again, it sort of feels like these people putting on a show for each other and like being like, oh, like it doesn't it doesn't matter uh, that you don't believe in the, the spirits or whatever. Like it's, it's very fun. And... They go to check out the chapel, which, as you say, functions sort of as the evil heart of this house. Mm -hmm. And it's decked out as a church in hell, which is creepy as hell. It's creepy as hell. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's really great production design. I'm curious what you think about just the way that this house in general is decked out. 
I loved it. Uh, it's the kind of place where, you know, I'll show this movie to my fiance and she'll just want to live there. You know, it, <laughs> it's that wonderful, uh, extravagant architecture, the flourishes, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, of the fireplace and the banisters and the walls and so forth. Everything about it just screamed demented extravagance. Yeah. I mean, God, if Florence's bedroom is, I mean, it, oh, yeah. again, it's very extravagant, but it also. This extravagance kind of feels creepy on some level too, where it's like everything is blood red and and mm-hmm. like it's this in, like weird paisley wallpaper and the it's blood red and the bed is red and the headboard that she has has a burning heart with a cross and like god it's it's very creepy and a lot of sort of the little touches feel like they would be genuine to the sort of eclectic nature of somebody who owns this sort of house but also lends this air of ambiance to the movie that is very effective in sort of turning up the creep factor. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And the fact that it, it it kind of walked this weird balance between being well-kept insofar as, you know, the, the, the floors weren't falling out beneath them. But at the same time, it, it was cobweb-abound, which had some great right. effects of, like, you know, characters will talk about things with one another, and then you'll just see a kind of, a wind blow by on a cobweb. It's good. It's good stuff. And I mean, the sound mixing in it is very effective as well, where with those wind gusts, they'll blow through and it'll sound scary. And then sometimes it'll sound like breathing and you're Mm -hmm. not sure if it's a spirit or if it's the wind. And, you know, again, putting you in the shoes of these people in the house itself where they're not sure what's happening and you're not sure what's happening either. So yeah. in, um, in fact, it, it made for one of my favorite moments in the movie. I don't know if it's all right to skip you know ahead on this. Yeah, but, yeah we can jump uh, around a bit, but uh, you know, they're, they're playing a record of, uh, you know, a voice and, you know, Belasco, but they're playing this record and Roddy McDowell, he, you know, in his very cryptic way, he, you know, was saying, you know, like, you, you know, you don't believe so on and so forth. You know, we were all just looking at this record player right now. How do you know that he wasn't, you know, moving past behind us? And that's when right. the cobweb blew. And that was just a great moment. <laughs> it really is. It really is. And, and I mean, uh, the record player scene happens pretty much next. I mean, yeah. Florence can't go into the chapel because, it, because of all this spiritual energy there. And so she hears a voice saying, welcome to my house. I'm delighted you, can, I'm delighted right. you could come. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm certain you'll find your stay here most illuminating. Think of me as your unseen host and believe. And then the scene cuts. And you're obviously led to believe that this is the voice of a ghost talking to her. And it's very creepy. And it turns out to be this record player. But we find that out along with the rest of the crew. And they play the rest. And basically, it finishes off saying, uh, I believe that during your stay here, I will be with you in spirit. May you find the answer you seek. It is here. I promise you. Mm-hmm. And... Boy, this discussion of how the record player turned on and this gust of wind, it really not only is effective as a scare, but it leads into how their dynamic is going to work. They've sort of felt each other out a little bit now, and we see how Fisher knows a lot about Belasco and, and Florence's belief in these surviving personalities. It's in this scene that we sort of get these characters fleshed out a little bit as well. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fantastic moment. And I think that the next one coming up is their first experiment. Yeah. Uh, so, well, so before I'm curious, um, before we go too far, sure. what do you think about 
having Barrett sort of be our central character. I mean, we're definitely spending time with all of them, but he's the first one we're introduced to. We sort of see things from his perspective in this movie, at least for to an extent. I'm curious about what you think having the skeptic be the central character as opposed to, I feel like in more movies, they have the skeptic sort of be like sniping from the side. I think that it was important to have the skeptic be the central character because I think that there was a kind of, this movie was operating on, I think two different levels. One was the scary haunted house movie. Mm. And the other was paying service to those opening, that opening text there, almost infotainment. Uh, you know, do you want to know about psychics? You know, you know the, the difference between mental and physical mediums. Um, I think that it was trying to be as accurate as possible within the confines of entertainment as far as what a psychic medium is. Mm-hmm. You know, which, uh, what, you know, whether or not I subscribe to, I'm going to leave at the you know, door here. But I think that it was important to have a central character operating as a skeptic in this group of a mental and a physical medium so that they can hash out, you know, they can provide the evidence of their craft against him. You know, if, if we enter into it at that level of a baseline, then it's up to them to show what they have and kind of provide that for the audience. Yeah, I think it's really smart script writing. And I, I think that it's maybe something that more Haunted House scripts should consider because... It often feels like when the skeptic is that side character that their concerns or, you know, qualms about what's happening are sort of just, yeah, but sort of brushed to the side because you have to come into a haunted house movie with a certain level of, I guess I'm believing in ghosts for at least the next hour and a half or whatever. Right. And so, you know, this, I think, really shifts the dynamic of the audience relationship um, with the movie and uh, making it function in a way where you're sort of trying to figure out not only what's real in terms of their being attacked, but also like if these people are frauds or not, you know, trying to decipher the mystery of who these people are and what level their powers are legit, I think is, is really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, you know, bringing up what you uh, mentioned there, as far as having the skeptic as a side character, I think what that does is two things. Number one is more often than not, it makes that character just the annoying, uh, you know, the, the, the person that you don't want to be listening to in the first place. And then it just creates a conflict that I honestly just don't think is that terribly interesting. I'm not saying that movies shouldn't do it, but you know, when it just becomes you know, this character versus this character, he said, she said kind of thing, uh, that, mm. that interpersonal conflict, it's a little bit uninteresting as far as uh, that, that hearsay level. You know, If one person mm. saw something and the other person doesn't believe them, it's like not being on the same page on that level detracts from the conflict which should be happening which instead of man versus man should be men versus house. I mean, not to, right. not, not to genderize it, but you know, human being versus house. That's kind of right. where the conflict should be. And then the interpersonal conflicts should just kind of be naturally developed from their personalities more than simply not believing one another. Yeah, I totally agree. And basically what, what it boils down to is this sort of suspicion is the flames are certainly, uh, what the hell is that thing with the, uh, the bellows? Yes, they're, the the bellows are brought out for the flames of mistrust. <laughs> and, <laughs> and at, at when Florence hosts uh, a séance that evening, mm-hmm. and they call it a sitting, and 
she manifests the personality of a young man who threatens to hurt them, saying that he can't control himself. And although she's not a physical medium, Florence begins to manifest physical phenomena inside the house. And nobody's really sure what to make of it because she doesn't think that it's her. Fisher, who is the physical medium, is completely closed off to the house in order to protect himself. Um, and uh, I mean, our and our main guy is he doesn't know what to believe, which is sort of where we're at as well. It's it's a really interesting sort of situation that they find themselves in. Yeah. And it was one of the more effective uses of the disembodied voice. Well, not disembodied, but alternate bodied voice. You right. know, when the girl is speaking in low baritones in a kind of fractured voice that clearly isn't hers. It was done to great effect. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that can be really hit or miss. And in this movie, it was absolutely hit. I love the way that when she did take on the personality of the younger Belasco, as he was basically uh, claiming, the diatribe that she went on was fantastic. And yeah. the sound mixing of that was spot on perfect. You know, yeah. it, it didn't sound, you know, low roar demonic, but <laughs> it it sounded definitely not hers. It sounded menacing. It was great. Right. It was menacing because of the change, not because they had shifted the pitch down to whatever the hell, you know, the, that demonic tone yeah. that is found in uh, a dozen and a half cheap movies, mm -hmm. trusting the, the audience to understand what's happening and be scared. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that I'm auditorily recalling this. Uh, but if I recall correctly, it kind of had a double layer, like it had her voice. It did. It, sh it kind of wavers back and forth a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So I think that that was also pretty effective instead of just changing it entirely to have that kind of multiple, impossible multiple layer there. You know, you can't go high and low at the same time, but this did. So that was yeah. a great thing that, you know, when you achieve the very, very simple impossible, that's something that's super creepy. Absolutely. And this spirit is claiming to be Daniel Belasco. He, Florence is getting ready for bed later in the night, uh, and Daniel revisits her. And again, there's this menacing wind that blows through that sounds like it could be breathing. And Florence tries to talk to this ghost, but he storms out in a ghostly huff. <laughs> <laughs> And she tells Barrett in the morning that she's convinced that Daniel Belasco, this younger Belasco, is a major cause of the haunting. He's violent because he's scared. And if she can convince him to move on, they'll have made major progress towards curing this house or cleansing the house uh, in general. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's so pleased by this progress that she says that they'll do another seance, this time under scientific conditions. Another very cool scene, uh, some very cool lighting here, and it's very tense sort of hearing the conditions change because Barrett is, you know, he is the skeptic, and so he's he has this very measured tone, and uh, he's reading things out very clipped, and, and as things start to change and you hear sort of the notes of emotion start to creep into his voice, mm -hmm. you realize like, oh, I, I need to understand that something is happening even if I don't understand necessarily what's happening. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, uh, okay, one of the things that I, I loved about this scene was the short-clipped monotone just facts. He's, you know, basically narrating on a scientific level his notes. He's, he's speaking mm -hmm. his notes into a recorder, you know, uh, you know, 1057, you know, uh, temperature, blah. And uh, I love that kind of scientific method towards this. I think that that lent it a little bit of weight. It's one of the things that kind of annoys me about watching some ghost hunting shows 
is when they go the uh, when 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 I'll just call it out uh, when like Ghost Adventures and Zach Bagans when they go to a location, it's under the pretense of we're going to try and solve this for you. We're going to try and make it so that you know whoever is haunting this will move on. Right, and it's done with. Yeah, and then when they go there, everything is an element of surprise, like obnoxious surprise. So many bros and dude. And honestly, if they were going there to solve this mystery and and simply you know uh, get get a spirit to move on, you'd think that it would be with the same level of clinical precision. You'd think that it would be. Okay, you know, voice box, uh, you know, came up. This said this word, and so on and so forth. Okay, well, let's compare notes. But that level of disbelief that that little meter jumped or that little light turned on or that little light turned off, it doesn't speak to solving the problem. It speaks to trying to prove mm-hmm. and document life after death uh, right. or just entertainment. <laughs> well, sure, right. you and, you know, when, when you're going out and you're on your 384th you know, house tour uh, or, or reading, uh, however you want to put it, you'd think that the element of surprise at that point would be gone, that your meter, you know, jumped from one to two. <laughs> at that point, you th- yeah. I, I, I wish that shows, I, this, there's, there are a few Ghost Hunter shows out there that I actually do watch and that I do enjoy because they take that analytical approach. They observe things, they treat it with an air of skepticism. It's like, okay, well, we're getting something here, but we actually just noticed that you have a grounding fault wire here or some unsheathed old knob and tube wiring that could be causing this. So you should get that fixed. I don't think there's anything paranormal happening here. That There you go. That, done and done. <laughs> that's something I get behind because I, I, yeah. I do love the analytical. So yes, the analytical thing that Dr. Barrett uh, character was doing here was right on par with what I would expect out of a situation like this, out of what his yeah. character would do in this moment. Right. It follows the internal logic, which means that we're along for the rest of it as well. Because when things start to get beyond the scope of logic, we're like, well, we know that they're doing things right for the logical stuff. So it follow- it stands to reason that they're going to do the right stuff moving forward as well. So it really gets you behind the character, I think. Absolutely. And then... <laughs> As the character continues on, almost obnoxiously resolute in being a skeptic, Mm -hmm. the more that the situation kind of presents itself as being uh, a true haunting, the more his skepticism makes him the smug, unlikable character. So it kind of, he doesn't change a whole lot, but the situation changing around him does alter the audience's investment in him. And I mean, I, he, his perspective definitely does not change. He fights more with Florence about his general attitude of distrust and her claim of Daniel Belasco visiting her. And Barrett is attacked by an invisible force who does all kinds of crazy shit here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, There's a, just a really great chain of effects and stunt work here as he's like dodging planks with nails and fireballs <laughs> and falling chandeliers. And finally, it stops when Florence shouts no. Yeah. And so he suspects that Florence is using the house's energy against him, trying to get rid of him and Fisher. Yeah. But she thinks that Fisher is being used and Fisher thinks that it's her. And like, they're all sort of not believing each other, even in terms of their motivations or their intelligence levels in terms of being able to understand what people are doing there and and why they're there. It's, I think it's a really interesting triumvirate dynamic in that they're all, they're quote unquote on the same side. Uh, and yet they could not be more antagonistic to each other right. um, in a way that that feels 
realistic and not just like, well, we need these characters to not like each other. Yeah. And, <laughs> because they're coming at this situation from different angles. And that's the interpersonal conflict that I like because that mm-hmm. see, feels a lot more organic, feels a lot more natural. And I think this is, this is one of the moments in which uh, Ben Fisher starts to really you know shine mm-hmm. is him trying to theorize what's going on. You know, he knows that the house is alive. He knows that it's dangerous, but he doesn't know what actually crashed that chandelier. You know, right. was it Belasco? Was it the house? Or was it, you know, Florence? Right. And as he's trying to figure this out, he's also trying to, you know, do it with one hand tied behind his back. Because although he can hear and he can see, he's not allowing himself to feel. You know, he's he's not using his uh, third eye very purposefully. So he's trying to flesh out the reality of what's going on while also handicapping himself because to open that third eye would be way too dangerous. And, uh, you know, seeing him try to be understanding and sympathetic towards Florence because he sees her naivety and he sees that she is in great danger with how much she's been opening herself up. He's trying to be understanding. He's trying to take her under his wing. And I, I love the way that the characters start really developing from that moment. It's, I think, really one of the turning points where they sort of just get everything out in the open and sort of the relationships developing from that point. Everything really hinges on this scene, I think. Mm-hmm. That night, well, so we haven't really talked about her much, but Anne Barrett, yes. Dr. Barrett's wife, has also come along for the ride because she's come along on all his other research expeditions, even though this is a particularly dangerous one. And um, she said that she doesn't want to be alone. You know, there's a certain level of uh, Dr. Barrett's sort of prim and buttoned up nature and his skepticism just has sort of a cold feeling to him. And so this relationship between Anne and Dr. Barrett are, um, it's, it's very interesting, especially when you sort of see the way that her character develops in this next scene where Anne sees some sexy shadow puppetry among (laughs) other autoerotic phenomena. And, she goes downstairs and she's in this, she's clearly in a trance. She's sleepwalking, being sort of possessed and she disrobes and she is basically demands an orgy from Fisher. <laughs> like, you know, there's a lot of sort of implications about Anne and her repressed sexuality in this movie sort of the whole way through when she's first sort of experiencing these phenomena and she's in her room still, you know, she's holding the, or no, even way earlier when she's talking to her husband in their room, she's holding a 19th century novel, sentimental education by Gustave Flaubert. And, uh, it's about like passion and sex and desire. It's, it's a very, it's a, it's a romance novel. And this is very counter to the image that were presented of this buttoned up couple. And, you know, later in the movie to jump forward a little bit, this happens again when, where she's sort of possessed and, and, uh, is feeling Randy and, you know, she, she says that she know she knew what she was doing, but she was she didn't know what she was doing, and she was in this trance, and it feels it feels like she's acting on something that had been inside of her in terms of not feeling fulfilled or satisfied by her relationship, trying to make it work and and come along with this and involve herself in the work. I think is a really interesting sort of way to to have additional conflict again without feeling inorganic. It's, it seems like he's really thrown himself into into his work. And so seeing sort of the other side of that, of this neglected home life, um, I think is really interesting. It is. And 
I, th- I think I mean, it, it seems like kind of the natural, you know, if you were to ask the question of taking Dr. Barrett, what would it be like to be married to him? Ugh. And that seemed like a very uh, repressed proposition. Uh, so it was a good example of taking just a really dynamic human uh, character and putting her organically in this role and just seeing what happens when this house starts affecting her. And that's another reason that I picked this movie is we've had a lot of haunted house movies up until this point. But I think this is the first one that really starts to become adult. It really starts to grow up. I mean, I love the 1963 The Haunting. But Mm. let's be honest. If we were to take things prior to 1970... Socially, uh, and, and you know, with what we were dealing with in terms of media, it was still a little bit toned down, and we really didn't see the sexual revolution start to manifest itself into our movies and TV shows, especially movies at that point. But this is one of the first haunted houses that really feels no holds barred adult you know Mm -hmm. in so many ways with you know scares and with blood and with you know thematic elements and with sex so that's that's another reason that i do love it is it feels like almost the next progression and genuinely shocked me when i was watching this movie like this was my first viewing of it and i didn't know what to expect a lot of my sort of expectations of haunted house movies because it's not necessarily my preferred subgenre are informed by a lot of those classics just because that's more what I've seen when I've invested myself into a haunted house movie. It's typically stuff like The Haunting. And so seeing this movie be so frank about sexuality and the way that people actually act, I think was it, it shocked me and it, in a really positive way. And it, like you said, made it feel much more adult and like this is a real situation. Mm-hmm. And I mean... I w- when I was reading about this movie and I was reading about how it, this was actually toned down from the book, you know, it, it's that sort of level of prudishness uh, that was there from prior to the sexual revolution definitely still impacted it. But without a doubt, this is uh, a huge step forward in terms of gender politics and, you know, women having a sex drive and and you know being sexual people i i think that it was a really interesting character absolutely and the way that the house affected her with that kind of primal level not really you know possessing her necessarily but yeah i I think you kind of nailed it as far as taking away her inhibitions and you know was it really uh, completely changing her personality? I don't think it was. I think it was just right. simply taking the the emergency brake off and letting it roll down the hill to <laughs> the ultimate speed that it wants to go to. Right, and we've we've seen them talk about how it's not necessarily that, that the ghost is like, hey, do this thing, but that it is able to suggest things to people, that it, it makes people go over to the record player and everyone pays attention to it. And, oh, it makes Anne go over to these books and sort of, you know, have these emotions sort of, the bellows are back out, baby. They're <laughs> flaring up. And it's, uh, and, and yeah, and, and I just think that it, it's not only is it a really interesting approach to this character, it also, reinforces what we know about the ghosts and the way that they work in this world. Right. Um, Which also makes sense from the point of view of the ghosts continuing on the malevolence that they had in life. You know, the backstory of Belasco, it allowed that to continue flourishing in the spiritual presence. 
you know, yeah. with all the orgy stuff and murder stuff and so on. And, and so uh, Fisher, he slaps her to snap her out of the trance and she runs off horrified, embarrassed. Um, and Florence is meanwhile hunting for proof of Daniel Belasco mm-hmm. and she's attacked and claims it was him pointing to a skeleton chained behind the wall and hidden away. And she says that this is Daniel um, and, and his spirit attacked me, but there he is. And they bury the body and they hold a funeral to try and usher it along. But the spirit continues to harass her, which is bewildering to her as well as the rest of them who are even like, I don't even believe in like uh, these personalities that survive past death. But even if I did, wouldn't it have gone on by now? Yeah. So I, I think that it's it's interesting, again, sort of when you play by this internal logic, when you do things that shake that, um, it makes it much more scary. Mm-hmm. And you also have a multifaceted level of conflict, interpersonal conflict, mm-hmm. because you you did have Dr. Barrett still continuing on in his resolute, you know, irritating smugness, saying yeah. that there is no haunting, you're doing this yourself, stop lying to us kind of thing. Uh, And then you also have Fisher feeling sorry for her because he, you know, although he doesn't exactly know what's going on because he hasn't opened himself up to this point, he has in the past been a part of this house. So he knows what it's capable of. And he also knows generally who is and isn't present there. So this whole Daniel Belasco thing, he's basically, you know, it's like, I want to help you, but you have to understand that you're being lied to she's not only being lied to, she's being constantly attacked. Like the spirit is attacking her. She gets uh, attacked by like a possessed cat. And this attack scene is just great. It's, it's like funny, but also I have cats and they are extremely pointy and painful at times. (laughs) And so like, I really sympathized with her getting attacked in this way. And, it keeps swinging between this cool, like moving shot and more traditional lockdown shots. And it keeps you off balance in a way that makes you feel like the ghost is there. It's doing these interesting POV things, but also it could just be sort of like a floating shot from above. It's a lot of really cool stuff happening all at once. um, But this does, it's in the rest of the movie as well. Mm -hmm. And the more she gets attacked, the more happy she almost seems because like, well, this happened in this way. So now I have this new piece of evidence to support my theory. And right. Well, and, and the fact that it feels like the house has sort of chosen her yeah. to, to sort of be this conduit and that Daniel feels like Daniel in quotes feels like he can trust her and, and talk to her. And, and, and that when she feels special, in fact, it's the house using her mm-hmm. and it's, it's tragic. It's really tragic. <laughs> it is. It is. Barrett suspects that Florence is actually mutilating herself to convince them that this is happening, but she's convinced that Papa Belasco is a spirit strong enough that he can overpower the will of the other spirits in the house, including trapping Daniel there, which is why he hasn't moved on. And, uh, the second seduction attempt between Fisher and Anna occurs. This time she is awake, but she is drunk. And this time her husband sees. He arrives a moment later and he sees her coming on to him. He does see Fisher say no, which is, you know, again, feels much more realistic in terms of setting up future conflict. It, it would have been very easy for them to go for the cheap, like, oh, how dare you? I'm going to punch you for like trying to cheat on my wife. But instead, we sort of get this more knowledge of like Barrett understands this sort of frigidity that has been existing between him and his wife and, and, you know, this fear of losing her because he's so invested in her work sort of bubbles to the surface, even though 
she didn't actually cheat on him, right. you know, and, and that he knows that they're in this environment that's, that could certainly affect people. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's very realistic. I like it a lot. And, uh, you know, there's another really cool POV shot where when, when they notice him up there, like her vision swims and we're from her perspective and, you know, she falls to the ground. It, it, it's just a very cool scene. So uh, two things I want to uh, point out here is one, I think this scene is one of the pivotal ones in terms of a handshake. We're pretty much handshaking with with Dr. Barrett as the skeptic lead, handing over the reins of the main character over to Fisher at this point. Fisher Mm -hmm. has been a very important character, but has not really been the main character. And I think this is the point in which Fisher starts taking the reins. And I love that transition there. So by having uh, Dr. Barrett kind of in the dark about what's going on, but following Fisher, it it does kind of swap the lead there. And from that point on, Barrett is a little bit... Now now we're starting to exhibit that antagonistic, skeptic role. But we've done so good of a job establishing him up to this point that it doesn't... It feels annoying, but perfectly within the context of the character. Yeah. And the fallout of this uh, incident is is absolutely incredible as well. It's a great, great performance by Gail Hunnicott as Anne, who uh, in their discussion when she's just so distressed about the situation and, like I said, knowing but not knowing what she was doing. And mm-hmm. this he forgives her sort of, but he's still like resentful of Fisher and uh, he spurns his warnings that Anne should leave because the house is affecting her. And he claims that Mr. Deutsch is claiming one third of his money referring to Fisher, obviously. And so, you know, flustered by this accusation, it's not a nice thing to hear, even if he is there to just keep his shield up and collect the check, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know? And so he drops his sort of psychic shields and uh, he's immediately attacked. And again, the, the camera sort of is moving around and it comes to rest at this weird angle during these uh, ghost scenes. And it, it kind of feels like Evil Dead in a way that yeah. I, I really enjoy where it, it comes to rest. It's not like quite a Dutch angle, but it feels a little like a little tilted and it's up in the corner. Uh, it's it's very cool stuff. And, you know, I wouldn't be su- surprised if Sam Raimi had seen this many times when he was <laughs> developing his style. So, yeah, it definitely has that uh, that aspect to it. I do want to point out one uh, quick thing uh, on the previous scene as far as when Barrett was confronting Fisher about his wife. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that instead of having the obvious conflict of, you know, catching them, that Barrett instead, you know, was mentioning the frigidity and so on and so forth, or, you know, the the tension between he and his wife. I love it when a film or a TV show takes a very, very easy target in terms of conflict and instead flips it around and makes it a non-issue. House of Cards did a great job of that. There was a scene in which the main character started to become involved with somebody other than his wife. And it was a journalist. There was going to be some press written. It was for, it was pleasure, but it was more than anything else political. And you think at that point, you know, this was fairly early on in the series. You think at that point that there would be like this long stretch of multi-season <laughs> conflict of, you know, oh, will I he have get this caught? blackmail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And instead, she finds out pretty quickly. You know, she finds out, he tells her, and she's like, okay, how long? You know, is it, you know, personal or professional? Okay, 
you know, and that yeah. was it. So it, you know, took that easy, you know, target and just completely flipped it on its head and really fleshed out these characters with this whole new dynamic that you weren't expecting in the first place. And that's exactly right. what this movie did with that too. Yeah. It, instead it reveals his wife as another political player instead of just, you assume that she's going to be, Oh, this housewife who has no idea of the machinations of what this character is going through. Instead, she is in fact, right at his side, understands exactly what they're going through. Uh, I, I agree. I think it's a really interesting um, way to keep things fresh and, and to create that dynamic between the audience and the and the characters that they're watching of like, oh, now I am much more interested and invested in where this is going to go because it's not the same thing we've seen a thousand times. Right. Fisher is shook by this attack here, and he attempts to convince Florence that they're screwed <laughs> by... To like discussing the deaths of the previous crew. And this is another really great scene where the camera is like slowly rotating around him in close up. And I mean, this is a, it's just a really solid performance by him in this scene where he insists that he's going to remain shut off until he's a thousand miles away. And he suggests that she do the same. Is this when um, he was uh, just recalling his past expedition? Yes. Love yeah. that. Love that. Yeah. It's so good. And it's, I mean, these descriptions are also scary. Like, you know, it's not graphic in like, in like overly explicit, but he is describing these gruesome injuries that are hard to hear about. And in terms of like, oh, their spine was crushed and and they were paralyzed for life. And, you know, now they're in a mental institution. Like it's some, some pretty it's some stuff that really kind of shakes you and it's meant to, it's meant to shake Florence as well. And she is unconvinced, unfortunately for her. So, and another thing I love is we are clued in along with the characters about the nature of what's actually going on in that moment, but neither we nor they understand it yet. That was a major clue is when he's starting to go on about the injuries as far as revealing the why of the house. You know, I, I love when we are prevent, provided with clues that don't slap us across the face and saying, hey, it's a clue. <laughs> so, just kind yeah, of going absolutely. back in retrospect. It's I love that. Absolutely. And we're sort of getting to the point now. They've been here for a couple days. And so things are starting to come to a head. Thing, they need an answer. And Barrett's machine finally shows up. Chekhov's gun goes off. Here it is. It's assembled. It's intended to de-energize the house. And they say, we're going to do this tomorrow. And Ben attempts to dissuade him. But Barrett says he's going to go ahead because he's sure that both Florence and Ben are wrong. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Florence has just been continued to be harassed this entire time. There's a cool camera spin that happens while she's like disoriented. It just does like a sweet spin. And in an attempt to put Daniel to to rest, Florence reluctantly has sex with the ghost. And again, it would be very easy for this to be sort of handled in a corny way where it turns into like the Ghostbusters blowjob scene. But instead it's handled in not only is it handled in a, in a very serious way, but this religious aspect of the way that Florence views her gift, she's reluctant not only because it's a ghost, but because it, it conflicts with her religious ideals. And so sort of this desire to be, special and the one who can do this who can free the spirit from its bonds uh, from its bonds here she compromises her religious ideals she says that she's going to do this in order to free him as an act of love from god and so instead this character does this 
intense moral deliberation finally does it and then instead of paying off in a way where like yeah the ghost goes away uh it brutalizes her and possesses her body like uh, it it goes inside of her and like she feels him inside of her trying to control her it's it's a really intense scene that i think does work but it would it would be so easy for that scene not to work absolutely it was the final culmination of of the lie it was the ultimate corruption in terms of what they were wanting in the first place you know with this whole daniel belasco sub story right and it was heartbreaking and it it was extraordinarily creepy you know you're right it was done in a very serious manner and it could have been very corny it could have been very very cheesy but they they really worked a very fine balancing act here and it you you always felt that tension you were always waiting for this to go spectacularly wrong Mm -hmm. because the one thing that you knew as the audience member i mean you didn't factually know it but you suspected very very strongly at this point that she was being lied to and this was definitely not the right call (laughs) (laughs) so you know you were just on the edge of your seat just kind of waiting for it to go wrong and then of course it does it sure does and uh Finally, the day is here. It's Christmas Eve. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> gathers around the Yuletide ghost-destroying machine. Florence, like I said, she's possessed by the spirit of quote-unquote Daniel. Uh, at the time, we don't know that it is, in fact, Enoch. Uh, Enoch? Is that his name? Whatever the hell. The Elder ba- Belasco. Mm-hmm. And Florence tries to destroy the machine because she says that it's going to hurt the spirits in the house and it's just going to send them from one hell to another but she's prevented from doing serious damage and barrett is all the more convinced that he's right because of the attack which i thought was a very again very realistic and interesting sort of character moment for him yeah absolutely i mean from his point of view this was her last ditch effort to prevent herself from being exposed as a fraud or at the very least you know exposing that uh you know there is no haunting element to the house and that it's all coming from her that right and and at worst destroying basically everything that she believes in in terms of surviving personalities and 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 what she's devoted her whole life to right so of course you know what he's theorizing this absolutely cements it. That's a fantastic logical conclusion. That's a great way for, you know, that the author said, okay, you know, this happens, then this happens. How does this character, you know, not necessarily how would I react, but how does the character react? And that was just pitch perfect. Yeah. And Barrett is setting things up. He's sure he's won. And so he takes his eyes off her and Florence goes into the chapel, which as we discussed, has so much like evil energy coming from it that it functions as the heart of this house. And she tries to warn the spirits there, but she's crushed by this falling crucifix that is like Jesus with horns. And and, uh, it's she realizes that they've been tricked too little too late, but she does finally realize and there's this spooky faint laughter in the in the rafters of the chapel and as she dies she draws the letter b in her own blood and she circles it and Barrett, he's in the other room. He activates his machine. It seems to be effective. The sound of screams fills the house. And um, Fisher, he reluctantly but does open himself up to the house. Uh, He wanders around. He's sensing the psychic energy, but to his astonishment, completely clear, he says. He's he's psyched as hell. Yeah. (laughs) He's astonished, too. 
but all of a sudden the energy returns and with it this sort of uh, violent activity uh, uh, reoccurs as well and boy it kills the heck out of barrett finally (laughs) (laughs) after all these attempts to uh, take him out barrett is finally crushed in the chapel by a chandelier and um it's brutal this death is sort of the tipping point for Fisher, where he has had enough and is obviously upset at the death of her husband. And so the two of them go to confront the house and they decipher Florence's dying clue of this bee to realize that the elder Belasco is, in fact, the sole entity haunting the house, that he's been masquerading as these other ghosts and and you know basically just messing with the inhabitants um by pretending to be daniel and you know use this as sort of his sadistic game you know all of these sort of cruel and sadistic elements of his nature manifest themselves as him portraying these other characters just to mess with people Mm -hmm. um i think that it's sort of hinted at earlier in the movie but when it does finally come together it's very satisfying absolutely yeah, it, it, first of all, it was fantastic at this point to see Doctor Barrett go. Uh, but at this point, you know, at this point in the movie, you want to see him die, anyway. right? And I didn't, I didn't think that they were going to kill him off. I thought that he was going to escape and be like, "Oh, I guess I believe now." But like, mm-hmm. no, they take him out, and it's really great, and it's it's shocking because you you feel like you're so far into the movie that they're like not going to kill anyone else at this point. That it's sort of nearing the off ramp, and uh, instead, there he goes. Yeah. And I think it was very heartbreaking for to see that Florence came to this realization of this ultimate truth just before she died, because she was operating on this sense of not only Daniel, but that uh, the elder Belasco, she, you know, she didn't not believe that the elder Belasco was around. He, she believed that he was around, but torturing and controlling all of these different spirits. And she wanted to operate in service of them. She wanted to help them. She wanted to help Daniel. She wanted to get these innocents from under the elder Belasco's thumb. And she manipulated that. And yeah. it, it, it works very, very well in terms of sort of this, again, like I said, it's, it's a genuine tragedy, like in terms of like the truest meaning of the word um, where it's, it's her own sort of blindness, blind optimism sort of led her to this point in terms of optimism about her own abilities and optimism about sort of the nature of the people that she would be talking with and communicating with. Yeah. There was something really like hero's journey esque about seeing Fisher finally have enough stand up ready, you know, like that's it. You know I mean? Like he, you know, he was attached to Florence. He wanted to protect her. He couldn't. And he's coming, you know, he's seeing that she came to this realization. She came to this truth. He's absorbed by this absolutely tremendous sadness. You know, the, the, yeah. the, the, you know, you're right. It is a tragedy. And he felt it. And that was it. You know, like now he's no longer a passive bystander. And it's not even that he's moving into more of an active role. He's moving into an adversarial role. Like, fuck this. Yeah. I'm coming for you now. And that was really interesting. Absolutely. I mean, he he realizes based on the nature of the deaths that Belasco has this like obsession with spines and legs and that this is like his weak point, this obsession with the extremes that he he's overcompensating and that he in fact was a puny little nothing uh, and he taunts Belasco with highlights including declaring him, quote-unquote, no roaring giant, but rather a sawed-off little bastard, <laughs> and uh, and that he fooled everyone about his height. And, you know, it's, it's really nice sort of seeing this outburst of rage 
from Fisher, who has been so reserved up to this point because he's refusing to connect not only with the house, but to an extent with the people around him as well. And so finally, when this death occurs and it breaks the dam of these emotions, it all comes out directed at Belasco. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's really good. Yeah. And the sort of psychic power that he has, it overtakes Belasco and everything becomes very still. And Fisher concentrates and they're in the chapel and a, the stained glass partition at the back just breaks. And it reveals this hidden door there. Um, classic hidden door in a haunted house. You gotta have it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they discover this room can, uh, that has Belasco's preserved body in it, just yep. sitting in a chair. And he pulls out his pocket knife. Uh, I thought it was really funny that Anne gasped when he like went to go like stab down with the knife. Like, first of all, even if it wasn't prosthetic legs, which surprise, that's what it is. Uh, you know, he's also been dead and also trying to kill them the whole time. <laughs> like, I mean, in her defense, it was hermetically sealed. So, I mean, he looked a bit pallid. He, he did. But he definitely yeah, did. He, he looks good for his age. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> but yeah, then it reveals the prosthetic legs. Yeah, and uh, his final secret is that uh, he had his own legs amputated because he was ashamed of his shortness and that he, uh, you know, replaced them with these prosthetics. And not only was he, she was like, oh, you're not a genius because you, you know, build yourself fake legs or whatever and try and, and cheat death. But we find out that Belasco had this room specially built and lined with lead to like he predicted basically this sort of electromagnetic approach to dispersing ghosts and uh and so he was a genius in that he predicted this and attempted to subvert it with this lead-lined room and uh, the electromagnetic nature of life after death was confirmed i guess by this because they go and they turn on the machine a second time and with the door open this time with the door open (laughs) and uh it clears the house and, uh, you know, Anne and, and Fisher, they walk out and hoping that Barrett and Florence will guide Belasco to the afterlife. Yeah. It's a really interesting sort of final, like, well, here's the answer sort yeah. of thing that I don't feel like you normally get in a haunted house movie. Right. And I mean, it, it, it ends with the same score and foggy exterior that we opened with. And that was yeah. a nice little bookend there. But no, we don't typically get a whole lot of answers. And if we if we do, they're pretty lackluster. And I got to say that I don't really defend the ending of this one a whole lot because I it's not my favorite. I mean, mm-hmm. this is my one of my favorite horror movies of all time. But there's something to be said for the scariest thing is the unknown. And as soon as right. you explain it, it loses its you know fear. But I mean, it did happen at the very, very, very tail end. But I think, honestly, that I'm going to start defending the ending because even though the whole thing about the prosthetic legs, as far as an ultimate answer for what was going on, it feels a bit lackluster. I have to kind of say that I don't think that it was lackluster because the ending was unsatisfactory. I think it was lackluster because the 95% of the movie that preceded it was so grand. I don't think that there could have been an answerable ending that would have done justice to how scary and grand the rest of the movie was. I'll be honest. I I like this ending. I I think that it does work because not only does it sort of cement the, the petty nature of Belasco and, the fact that all of this was just his ego and, and his own desires sort of, 
permeating the lives of so many people. I also really like sort of what this sets up in terms of the future of these characters. You know, Mm -hmm. they now know how to prevent death. And not only does this open up interesting character developments for them and how they would proceed in their futures, but also in in the immediate future of what do they tell Deutsch? They have a confirmed answer, which is what they went there for. And so does knowing this open up a can of worms for for this entire world of knowing how to sort of circumvent this? And if the wrong person does it again, this sort of ethical dilemma that is left unanswered at the end of this, I think does work and is perhaps a larger, scarier thing that is only hinted at by this, uh, this, you know, prosthetic legs found in (laughs) in this lead lined room. Yeah, and I mean that that would provide an interesting moral quandary. You know, do we keep this to ourselves? Is it you know is is humanity ready for this knowledge? That kind of thing. I don't remember. You've you've watched the movie way more recently than I have. Was the money that they were going to get based on providing confirmation? Just a answer. Just an answer. Just, okay. Yeah. Man, I would just like no. You know, <laughs> <laughs> chandelier fell. What are you going to do? You know, money. Yeah, well, that plus it's like Deutsch didn't seem like a particularly gentle person. And, no. uh, and, uh, and so, you know, the kind of person who is so concerned about the afterlife perhaps is not the one who deserves to avoid it mm-hmm. sort of thing. You know, I, I just think it's really interesting. And not only do we get a bunch of great kills, the final body count of Hell House, including past victims, 36 humans and one cat. Oh. Pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> that's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> also at the very end we got a, a a last shot of a new cat at the house oh yeah uh, that's right so you know you get you get these nice exteriors of the gate of like looking up at the house through the gates where it's sort of like it looks like nothing has changed like you know these people have gone in they've lost partners they've lost friends and or you know associates at the very least and you know they leave it looks like nothing has changed but their lives are changed the lives of these ghost lives in quotes of these ghosts are <laughs> changed and you know uh, ostensibly the whole world's changed by this knowledge that they're bringing out so yeah. um i i think that it's it's really interesting and uh, although you said you're not super willing to defend the ending prior to that we've now reached the point of the show where we defend the whole movie all right. As, quote unquote, the best horror movie ever made. Uh, I know that for a lot of horror fans have a really hard time with this sort of labeling, but for the sake of the show, this is the best horror movie ever made. So, uh, Mike, I'll let you uh, start us off. Okay. Well, basically, what I'm going to do is repeat myself a fair bit. Haunted yeah, House. We're, we're bringing it all back. <laughs> Haunted House movies have been prevalent in horror from the get go. You know, we did have you know, Dracula's castle. We did have Frankenstein's castle. We did have the old dark house. We had the Abaddon Costello and, you know, hold that ghost. We had uh, haunted house is just one of those fundamental visceral fears that we have as a humanity. You know, it, it's, it's a domicile. It's a protector. It's something that, you know, we, we look to for safety and to have one old and abandoned and rickety and not just no longer safe, but actively dangerous, not to mention the past history of whomever might have occupied the house in the uh, past still residing on, you know, embedded and imbued in, in, within the timbers themselves. It, it's fascinating. And this is the most grown-up adult 
haunted house movie of its time. We did have the absolute classic of 1963's The Haunting, and I do adore I do it I adore it. It's one of my absolute favorites, but I would say that this takes it to the next level, the next logical level, the next human level. It takes the concept of, of these characters trying to prove life after death within the confines of this really evil house and then applies really strong human aspects of sexuality and depravity and murder and so on. And it takes it from that ooh spooky kind of thing, you know, uh, or, you know, okay, you know, going on a serious level, it takes that, uh, you know, there's nobody that lives closer than town, you know, in the night, in the dark. It takes that spooky aspect and makes it dangerous. It brings it to that next level of violence and gore and sex and death. And it does it in a way that is interesting and insightful without actually going over the top. It really goes right to the edge of over the top in some scenes. But the camera work and the acting and so forth, it just really works in service of this film. And for a subgenre that I consider to be one of the most top-notch tiers of horror, I consider this to be the best example of it. There you go. I, I think that that's a great summary of why this is the best. I mean, even if there weren't a great story and some legitimate scares, the acting alone would be worthy of commendation. And you do have those other things. It is scary. There are moments of shock that I was not expecting from a movie from 1973. And the fact that it is so adult and that the themes are discussed with such frankness, it's really, really excellent. And especially from the other perspective, as someone who is not super into haunted house movies, the fact that this sort of transcends that by treating it in this adult fashion, I think makes it the best horror movie ever made. Mike, this was absolutely a great time. I love talking movies with you, man. And uh, I want to give you a chance to tell the people where they can find you talking about movies. Well, uh, you can either go to rottedreviews.com. That has kind of my principal webpage along with a summary of all my reviews and so forth. But you'll also find me at youtube.com slash rotted-reviews, I believe it is. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on YouTube. Just search for Rotted Reviews. You'll find me there. You know, Twitter and so on and so forth. All I'm all, I'm kind of all over the place, but primarily I do operate as a YouTube film critic for horror films. Definitely check that out. And if you go back far enough, you just might find a roundtable of us talking about new wave uh, horror and art house horror. So that's right. That was give, a good time. Give that a watch. Yeah. <laughs> so, and as far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at Gerg Hef. The show has a new website that is littlehorrorphl.com. But if you don't want to listen to the site or if you don't want to listen to the podcast on the site, we're also on all your typical podcast places. So rate and review us on those things and uh, buy some merch if you want. And also uh, tell a friend because that's uh, just as helpful as anything else. And it's very easy. All you have to do is go, hey, have you heard about this podcast I like? It's called The Best Little Horror House in Philly. Uh, so easy to do. Helps us out a lot. Go ahead and do that. Uh, Mike, again, I want to I thank you. And um, this has been a, a really great one. I really like this movie a lot. And so I encourage people to go check it out. Oh, thank you. Um, this was a blast. Yeah. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.